Welcome to the weekly Mission Red Bank podcast, helping the body of Christ build itself up together in love. So we've been uh, celebrating Epiphany. The celebration this season is a six-week celebration that the light of Christ has come. And uh, we started last week in Isaiah 60, and we're going to continue on in it today and actually next week as well. Last week, we looked at the first three verses, and we noticed how God was giving encouraging words through the prophet to some of his people who were coming back out of exile. Some of them had been so beaten down, traumatized, if you will, by what had happened. And so he's calling them to remember, you are who you are because of whose you are, and you are my people. And he's... He's calling them to remember that they were created and set apart to be a light to the nations. And so this worn down community of followers of Yahweh are traveling back home, struggling, recovering from years, really generations of suffering. Today we're going to look and hear the Lord As we did in our epistle, and I'm sorry, in our Old Testament reading earlier, hear him encouraging them further, using a lot of poetic language to awaken their imaginations to help more of them understand that following him back, even even at a time when you don't have vision to come back, or it's painful to come back, or whatever the case may be, following him back into a place of rebuilding and recultivating life after so much loss, how this was really their next best right step. So let's pray, and then we'll look at it together. Father, humbly and boldly, I ask that the words of my mouth and the thoughts and the meditations of each one of our hearts will be pleasing to you King Jesus, our rock and our redeemer, Holy Spirit, come and teach us, work on our hearts, and make us like our king. Amen. So if you go this week and look at the whole section, you can read from verse 14 to, I'm sorry, from verse 4 to 15 in Isaiah 60. I just read four of the verses earlier. And in those verses, this is what I focused on. If you'll remember back, you can look at verse 4 and 5 and 13 and 14, and here's what you'll see. God tells them, your sons and your daughters will return. Those who've been exiled, those who've been born in exile, they're coming back. And then he says, when you see this, you'll be radiant as your hearts are lifted up and thrilled at the wealth of the nations that will also begin to pour into you. And then he says, you're going to use this wealth to rebuild my holy sanctuary, my temple. Because one of the things that had been said when Artaxerxes had told the Jews that they could go back and sent Ezra with them, and he provided wealth for them, he sent them back, and one of the goals was to rebuild and beautify the temple. And then he says, God gives them 
an encouragement of justice. He said, all those who abused you, who afflicted you, who treated you badly, they will come and bow before you, calling you my city, the city of the Lord, the city of Yahweh. Now, we looked at this last week and saw how the Lord was encouraging a certain sect of these people. But earlier, just a few moments ago, I said he's reaching for more of his, of his people through these words. And to, to understand that, it might help if I give us a little context, kind of describe the people of Judah who've been in exile in one form or another from three different dispositions. So I'm going to do that real quick to help us with context. First, Whenever a kingdom came in and overthrew and then captured people from another kingdom, who they would take would be the best and the brightest. They would take those who were the strongest, the healthiest, the smartest. Why? They wanted to weave them into their culture and make their culture better. So they were utterly objectified into come and make us better, but don't think you're better than us. Just come and be used. You see what I mean? So... The first group of people I talked about last week, they were the best and the brightest who'd been taken into captivity to serve pagan, foreign kings in exile. And now that they were going to return home, they were doing so, but they were a very broken-hearted, worn-down people. They had suffered so much in this judgment that they, they didn't know how they could be the light that God had created them to be anymore. That's the first group. The second group also were those taken away into exile, the best, the brightest, but these had flourished in the foreign area. They had married and they had had children and they had had generations of children and they had established themselves in these pagan communities and when the call came for them to come back, they didn't want to leave. Why? They had no vision. Even though God had promised before that he would bring them back out of this and they would retake the land, they had no practical vision for it anymore, even though God had spoken it to them. So when the prophet comes and says it, they don't want to go. They want to stay where they are and they resist leaving because this is familiar This is safe. This is what I know now. And then lastly, you had those that the other kingdoms, it's the third group of people, they wouldn't have considered the best and the brightest. They wouldn't have been thought of as people who would have added to the elderly, the sick, maybe the really young. They wouldn't have added to their culture. So they were left behind in the rubble to live or die. They had experienced an exile that was emotional, internal, and traumatic while never leaving home. They were in the land, but felt as lost as they could. These are the three kinds of people. And when I thought about this, and we talked about it in preaching team this week, we were trying to think, how can we, from our context, bridge to theirs? And somebody came up with this idea. It was Jesse, actually, and we thought it was a good analogy. 
We thought if you, if you considered it's like 1862 before the Civil War kicks in and you're from Atlanta and you know the war is coming, like it's become very obvious that our country is in turmoil and civil war is coming. And you decide, or not you, but your family decides, you're not quite old enough to make the decisions yet, but you're in the family, and they decide we're going to New York, Chicago, Canada, we're getting up out of here because this is going to be awful. And so you have the means and the ability and you leave. But some can't leave. They're either too stubborn to leave or they're just not able to. They don't have the ability uh, physically or financially to get out of there. Then the war comes. And the war's played out and it's over. And there's a call to go back to Atlanta and rebuild. But you have to remember, Sherman's already been through there, and he has raised Atlanta to the ground. There are some who, coming back, will carry the grief of thinking what they're going to find of family and friends who died, how the country has suffered in just five years, six years of war. There are others who are never coming back. The thought of having to go back and re-encounter that heartache is too much. And then there are those who never were able to leave, and they saw the war up close and personal. And it so traumatized them that it's as if it's still happening, played over and over in their minds. If you can relate to that picture a little bit, then you're scratching the surface of what Judah encountered because the Civil War happened in just a few years. What happened with Judah went on for generations. Decades upon decades upon decades upon decades. Different rulers taking over and becoming the new leader power of their life. And if you think about it, and you think of God painting this poetic language and saying the the goods of the nations are coming, your sons and daughters are coming back, even the ones born in exile, your daughters are going to come in on the hip, it's all going to be there, you're going to rebuild the temple, you're going to be my people. What? That just sounds like a fairy tale. How could that be? what God means in these words from the prophet. But it is what he meant. It actually was what he meant. Even though some of those things weren't realized fully in their midst, God was looking for what would be realized then and would be realized so much later that we haven't seen it yet. It's both and. And always remember that when you're reading an Old Testament prophet, so often in the church, we jettison the context and jump forward to some fulfillment in Jesus when he returns again. I'm not saying never do that. I think God is doing that sometimes. But when we forget the context that the people we're living in, we do them a grave injustice. We do the scripture an injustice. We do Isaiah an injustice. And all of that means we do God an injustice. 
So the people were being called back, and no one of them had enough imagination to receive what God was saying and realize it. No four or five of them had it. To get this, they were going to have to receive it corporately. They were really going to have to yoke up and receive what God was saying. He was letting them know, stoking their imagination, pointing them forward, calling them in to tell them all that you long for in redemption, in happiness, in joy, in goodness, in fulfillment, in health, all that you long for that's truly good, right, and true has its origin in me and its destiny in me. If it takes a hundred generations of you to see that fulfilled and you don't see it in your generation, but it's going to come later, it is worth it as a people to spend your life for the sake of God's goodness to be realized to his people. And that's really hard for us because we swim in a water that's full of I, me, my individualism. And God was not calling them that way. He was saying, you're my people, a people. And you together realize this to which I am calling you. And yes, it may be a thousand years later, but look what your life has been given to. Look at the fulfillment that you encounter. I didn't bring this up in the last service, but it, studying this made me think about when the children of Israel were wandering in the desert, or before they were wandering in the desert, they got to Canaan and they didn't go in because they were scared. And the judgment they received is this generation will not enter in. Can you imagine the heartbreak? But what did God say? You will wander, but your children. I will bring them back and they can enter in. So guess what they did? They worshiped Yahweh, they lived, they struggled forward and they died in that desert, but their children went in. That's the mentality of the Bible. That's the mentality of God's people. He stirs our imagination as a people. He paints a picture to call us Forward, And when God calls, we are to come as we are. We are to come together in him. We are to stand fast. That's why we had the passage from Ephesians this morning. We are to stand and we are to stay the course. That is what we're called to. And brothers and sisters, please hear me with all the love I can put out there. We've not been taught this in our culture. We don't believe it very easily. And we've got to push against that rudder and turn our faces to this because we will never realize the height, width, breadth, and depth 
of the goodness of God for his people individualistically. Did you know that in that passage in Ephesians, that all of the pronouns and that, you know, where you go to Lifeway and get the little armor of God thing made out of plastic and a kid beats you with a Nerf sword afterwards, that passage, that is a gross misunderstanding of Ephesians. All of the pronouns in the Greek there are plural. All of the verbs, plural tense. It is not you stand, it is y'all stand. (laughs) We are going to write that Bible someday. It's just going to be called y'all. That was gross. God calls, we come, we come, we stand, we stay his course for generations. Would you put up that picture for me, Haley? Not that one, the other one. That's a pretty one though. There we go. (laughs) That's the Great Wall of China, right? It took a little over 2,000 years to build. Dynasty upon dynasty gave their lives to seeing a 4,100-mile wall be built to protect the country, and it housed a million soldier army. Now the other picture. That's St. Kevin's Chapel in Ireland. And it's just one example of a little place where a few people would come to be called to worship God. And in about the same amount of time, billions upon billions upon billions of living stones have been raised up to follow Jesus Christ and become his church. Today, there are about seven and a half billion people in the world and two and a half billion of those people call on the name Jesus. Many in places where to do so is a death sentence. We are part of something that is moving in history with purpose that is beyond our imagination. And God has not only let us in on it, he's called us to be a part. To attend to his call to come, to stand, to stay the course together. That is the body of Christ's response to the creator's call. The body of Christ is seen in the world when we do that. When we bicker and bite and devour and divide, we send a different message. But when we come together in him, the world cannot escape the picture of Jesus. Our Father is calling. He's working an astonishing redemption, building a kingdom. And he's called us, asked us to join him in the work, to be his light to the nations, his body in the world. We must come, we must stand, and we must stay 
this course for generations upon generations together. There is no plan B. That's it. Your pulse, your breath, what life you have exists to this end. And in this is all the fulfillment, all the longing, all the answer for which we were created and for which you hunger. May God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit give all of us the grace to receive and help one another stand. Amen. You've been listening to the Mission Red Bank Podcast. Thanks for joining us. If you'd like to know more about Mission Red Bank or have questions about what you've heard today, you'll find us on Facebook. Grace and peace to you, and may God's blessings surround you.